Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Mod Path Chat, the official podcast of Modern Pathology featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the editor-in-chief of Modern Pathology and the chair of pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Welcome to a new episode of ModPass Chat. Joining us today is Dr. Peter Sado. Dr. Sada is the Director of Head and Neck Pathology at MGH and an Associate Professor of Pathology at Harvard. Peter is young, but he's already an internationally recognized expert in neuroendocrine pathology. He has a special interest and focus on thyroid cancer. He's also an expert in Egyptology. And as much as we would love for him to indulge us on a topic within his archaeology expertise, he is here today to discuss his recently accepted manuscript in Modern Past. The manuscript involved kinase fusion-related thyroid cancers. Thank you, Peter, for accepting our invitation. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Nato. This is actually my first participation in a podcast, so uh, I'm excited to do it and uh, very thankful for the opportunity. Hey, uh, some of uh, our previous podcast uh, hosts went on to a totally different career in Hollywood. So, so who knows? Uh, this could be a start of something. So on a more serious note, I would like to always uh, start by framing the context that led you to do this study, uh, and uh, which is uh, really an impressive study. Go ahead. Absolutely. Of course, the main, the main driver of what this study is has been spurned on from the cancer genome atlas studies which essentially divided thyroid cancers, particularly papillary thyroid cancers, into two subgroups. Those that have changes that are BRAF V600E-like mutations, where they metastasize locally to lymph nodes and more aggressively in the neck, and those that have RAS-like mutations, where they have distant metastases beyond. So, so that was the, the general driver for it. And we were trying to see if we were able to subclassify these even further to be able to both uh, identify items for prognosis as well as for diagnosis. So uh, the technology, we don't have much time to spend uh, on, on the uh, material and method, and, and uh, it's fair to say that the technology is NGS-based and AM-based anchored multiplex PCR, looking for fusions and looking for CMVs and indels. Uh, are these uh, the, uh, the Archer fusion panel and the snapshot panel that were developed in MGH that you used? 
Correct. The, we we we're continually updating them with additional uh, amplicons, but that's that's those are the primary primary foundations that we're using. Yes. Because the study spans seven years, so I imagine the panel uh, evolved as uh, as you did the study. That's right. uh, the cohort is is seven year cohort. Uh, wonderful. So, can you share with us uh, a little bit uh, about uh, the salient uh, findings first from the molecular aspect, and then uh, we can spend more time on the morphology. Sure. The the um, the salient findings essentially are tr to look for uh, look for findings that are beyond the, the typical EC. So, as you know, typically in thyroid cancer is a is an H and E diagnosis. We make our diagnosis based on morphologic criteria and architectural criteria. But there's some discussion about uh, the aggressive nature of certain cancers versus not certain cancers. And the only way for us to be able to tease that out, other than patient outcomes, is to really look for what are the underlying causes of that. So in this particular case, we have certain tools at, at hand. Some of them are H&Es, where I said we start majority with H&E. We can add in a small layer of, of, of somewhat helpful immunohistochemistry, and then we move on to uh, looking at these molecular Findings and the molecular findings can either be point mutations, which lead to behaviors, or fusion fusion proteins, which uh, which this looks for. And, and here we're looking pr primarily at fusions uh, in NTREC and at subtypes, as well as RET uh, RET fusion proteins, which are are druggable uh, findings. And that's the reason we wanted to explore this particular cohort. So that's that's interesting. So the ROS and and MET and and uh, ALK, Logis and and BRA fusions came came as uh, uh, part of the study and wasn't exactly what you were looking for initially, or exactly. I, I mean, we we have found, we've had these findings kind of pop up as as one off findings, and and the reason a number of these are included in our overall assay is because these have been found to be hot genes, for instance, in lung cancer and some other cancers where they become very common and, and assessed for. Here we're finding them as an occasional finding in thyroid saying, huh, isn't that interesting? But when we're able to go back and look as a retrospective cohort and look prospectively, we actually find that there are several of them that are there, even though individual faculty might have gotten them as a one-off and we were able to look retrospectively cohort, we see that there are more of them that pop up. And also we're able to see um, that not only do they have similar findings that may be in other tissue types, but they similarly also will respond very well to medications. Uh, which is, uh, it's, it takes us to, you know, it looks like around 395 cases that you guys uh, assess molecularly during the seven-year span of, uh, of the cohort. And uh, 62 of them had some alterations and became the topic of, of this study, correct? So while this rate looks... Uh, very high, but uh, there is a reason why you analyzed those 395. So the general rate of these uh, fusions is not as high, correct? Would you would you say? That's right, and and that's right. And I have to say that, of course, I'm I'm working at an institution which is fairly um, academically curious. So so sometimes there's there's a greater driver for this information than not. As as you well know the application of doing molecular testing has become fairly prevalent in, in fine needle aspiration biopsies, typically of cases that the FNA is determined to be indeterminate findings. And so it's not clear if it's diagnostic of a neoplasm or not. So subsequently, those uh, patients go on to get molecular testing, which may identify some of these interesting drivers up front uh, that, are, that are not typically BRAF mutations. And the reason for that is that 
those fine needle aspiration biopsies that are BRAF mutated are usually obvious diagnostically by FNA, which conversely now looking at surgical cases, we want to know what's driving uh, the, the, um, the tumor here so that we're able to give appropriate prognostic information uh, and potentially give treatment information for these patients rather than just saying, this is, we're, we have greater expectations of this at this point as pathologists than to say, yeah, this is this particular cancer, thanks for your time. You know, we they want more input from us. What what actually is this cancer? What's driving this cancer? And how should this patient be followed clinically? And I think that's the type. That's the reason for for really this doing this aggressive study. That's great. Uh, so let's, as you just stated, uh, we are being asked more and more to identify the molecular uh, findings uh, in a tumor. The days where we just stop at the histology uh, are. are Fortunately or unfortunately, over. So, but nevertheless, histology is the beginning of everything. So, and and in this particular study, your objective was to identify some features that can enrich for finding molecular changes, right? So, it was there a theme throughout all these cases that that you can share with us? Absolutely. You know, in the old in the old days, you know, the old days can be two years ago at this point. But but when you start talking about it, you know, a couple of decades ago, you know, we were we were parsing out variants of papillary thyroid carcinoma specifically because of morphologic and architectural features, and then trying to prognosticate which of them were going to be more aggressive, which of them were more likely to result in death or or at least aggressive clinical behavior. And we did that by calling these variants. So we we got our clinical colleagues used to hearing something like tall cell variant. And a chill would run down their spine and they say, this patient's going to do poorly. Well, now we have these molecular tools where we're able to actually specify what the molecular changes in these tumors to say, are they going to behave along a similar way or not? So now that we have some of those, that molecular data, can we correlate that back to the morphology so that we are able to predict potentially which tumors may harbor some mutations, specifically those that may or may not be targetable by therapeutics? And so that's what we did here. And, and, and one, of the, one of the particular ones which we've heard of all along, um, especially out of Chernobyl, as you'd mentioned earlier, was something like a diffuse sclerosing variant of papillary thyroid carcinoma, where we had very specific findings of prominent sclerosis, lots of somomatous calcifications. You know, you would, you would say the patient, did the patient have a past history of radiation exposure? And we used to think of that as the classic RET-PTC translocation that we used to hear about. Well, now we do it and find it systematically, and why is it that some of these, these patients that have features of diffuse sclerosing variant but don't actually fit the variant proper, they have no history of radiation exposure, maybe they don't have the diffuse presence of somomatous bodies everywhere, uh, but they have some features, what separates those? Like, how do we work those out? And so we were able to do that in this paper by actually having the molecular data and can making comparisons between, between these groups, seeing that the traditional diffuse sclerosing variant had the RET PTC, had RET translocations that were present, but tumors that didn't, didn't quite fit into that pattern. Tumors that had sclerosis, tumors that had this, this nesting pattern or this glomeruloid pattern uh, in, in papillary thyroid carcinoma, but didn't have some of these other features, also had translocations, but they had NTREC translocations. Okay. And so we were able to, to take some of these morphologic features and separate them out. But it, also finding that, is it particularly important to be able to separate them out or not? What the important breaking point for us was, is this patient positive for a BRAF mutation? Because if the patient was positive for a BRAF mutation, which we're able to do inexpensively by doing a singular, singular immunohistochemical stain, 
for BRAF, then we can say those patients are not going to have a translocation. None of the cases had both a BRAF mutation and a translocation. So we could sort of exclude that and not go down a more expensive molecular pathway in terms of testing. Uh, so, so we could do that. And then if they actually had a translocation, identifying that translocation, meaning is it a translocation with RET as a partner or NTREC as a partner, would then subsequently drive what treatment the patient um, would, would go on. And and just to, and you touched upon that, but for, for our audience, you talk about a triad of nodularity, uh, diffuse fibrosis, and LVI, which is shared in common with, with the diffuse sclerosing variant. So, so you, is it fair to say, if, if I have a tumor, I'm not, I'm not a thyroid expert, and I start seeing uh, their beautiful images uh, that I point the audience to in the manuscript, if I start seeing those changes, and, and uh, especially after I do the BRAF immuno, uh, that's probably will increase my yield. On, on hitting on translocation cases with these triads? Is that, is that fair? 100%. Uh, you know, it, it was in doing the study and preparing the study, which again was triggered by having a couple of patients in a row with a, with a finding which said, oh, I wonder how many of these patients we have looking retrospectively. Like, oh, wow, they all look the same. And here is this pattern. And that's why we ended up getting into it. Uh, it is absolutely that pattern that we suspect. Now, for most people, when they think of diffuse sclerosing variant, they automatically think of either one, this translocation, or two, a BRAF mutation. That's typically the two findings we find in diffuse sclerosing variant. And as, as, as many people who, who know about thyroid know, diffuse sclerosing variant also has a component of typically there are some tall cell features. So when you're trying to distinguish between true diffuse sclerosing variant and maybe some tall cell variant with sclerosis, one of the things we figure out is, is, is a BRAF mutation. So as you mentioned, we first exclude the BRAF mutation easily, but if the BRAF mutation is excluded, almost 100%, almost invariably, we find uh, this translocation that's there. So, so it, it is superbly easy for pathologists now to be able to look at an H&E and say, well, the first thing you need to do is the easy part, exclude a BRAF mutation. And once we do this, it's almost uniformly, it's almost uniformly found that we'll have this translocation morphologically alone. That is very helpful because these more expensive techniques and complicated are not available everywhere. So to to be able to focus on where your yield is potentially higher and will benefit your patient, especially now with the selective uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors for these translocations. Right. And I think about it a little bit, you know, being doing head and neck pathology, I think about it a little bit the way we think about, um, you know, looking for HPV changes in, a, in, a, in, a, in non-carotinizing squamous cells of the head and neck. We use P16 as a surrogate marker to say whether or not in the oropharynx is it, is it an HPV-related carcinoma. We can look at that in the thyroid and say, you know, not everybody has HPV in situ hybridization assays available, but maybe they have a P16 stain. So you can do the same thing looking at a thyroid cancer, you know, have the immunostain available for BRAF and say, is it BRAF negative, positive or negative, yes or no? If positive, it's excluded. If it's negative, then you can at least suggest the possibility without necessarily having the molecular testing available, you can suggest the uh, possibility so that if the patient, for instance, goes on to have aggressive disease or recurs, it's something they really need to consider because of the fact that it's druggable. And and there was, I mean, uh, there was some uh, response, sustainable response in those who ended up after the traditional treatment being treated with the uh, TKIs, right? Oh, absolutely. This is the wonderful thing. That's the reason I got so excited about this is that we actually had all of the clinical data and longitudinal clinical data about how the patients are doing on these drugs. 
they almost entirely respond to the drugs. And the additional data that we have that's wonderful, it's about the, the idea of having both the fusion assay and the, the uh, ability to look for, um, for single uh, variants, uh, is that the patients that subsequently no longer respond to these tyrosine tinies, ty kinase inhibitors have subsequently developed an additional mutation that has now made them uh, you know, lose their susceptibility to these drugs. Which is, which is really cool because we have the before and after. Here's a patient has the, the fusion. Here's a patient later who's going on to no longer be responsive, has this bonus point mutation that they didn't have prior to. Um, to Very similar story to EGFR therapy yeah. in lung where uh, a, a clone escape, uh, developing a new mutation. Exactly right. And then the thing is that the, these thyroid cancers are, are far fewer, so they don't have the attention of the lung tumors. But we start seeing that the biology of tumor, of tumor biology in general is, uh, you know, is, is, is system independent. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much. This uh, has certainly been a very informative and greatly enjoyable conversation. Uh, and I would like to thank you for joining MouthPass Chat. Uh, and I wish you uh, the best with your career and helping your patients. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of modern pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Netto. Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible. 